Hi, welcome to the cottage. We are a lively outpouring of an exciting adventure into God's riches and glories in Christ Jesus. We really work to activate an excitement for the kingdom of God as it is in the now until it comes into its fullness. We invite you to our sessions to explore the heights and depths of God's love in a fuller bandwidth. I'm Dr. Ken, the pastor of a small independent church seeking to return to the Lord's zeal in times where apathy and lethargy rule the day of the complacent. We try to shake things up and offer a temporary home as we travel this sod until we reach higher ground and connect into the everlasting life from above, here on the earth as it is in heaven. For more information, you can email us at thecottage at dken.cc. That is thecottage at dken.cc. Hi, welcome back to the cottage. We're continuing our sacred space series. We're doing a review, and then we're going to look at some of Herod's building projects today. And finally, we're going to turn to the Tower of Babel. Today's episode is on Babel. On one. Praise God. Okay, we're going to continue again. Uh, we left off somewhere, I think it was part nine, somewhere along the way, and then we got into the whole series of Jesus walking on the water. And I want to get back to the sacred space of the Bible. We attempted this message once before, and due to technical issues, we couldn't have it. And it's going to play into, again, this evening's message. So I want to tie in some things from this message to this evening's message. Again, this today, obviously, is Memorial Day weekend, and tomorrow... As a nation, we do honor the sacrifice and memories of those who uh, give us what we have today. But today, on the church calendar, globally, today is Pentecost Sunday. That's at Acts chapter 2, you're familiar with Pentecost. And so we're going to discuss some of that a little bit tonight and, uh, and what we want to do. And so we want to uh, begin returning back. And we talked about what is sacred space before to get as a review. And that's where heaven and earth meet. That's anywhere where heaven and earth meet. And, and for them, they understood that God's, you know, were in the heavens and God is in heaven. And everything comes down from heaven to us. And they understood water as life and as the power of all life. And so, Water flowed down to them, and it was necessary for everything. And it came from the skies, and it also came from the mountains. And the mountains, actually, are where earth and heaven meet. And so they believed that that's where the gods would often be. And water would come down from the mountains through the rivers and would feed the land as well as rain. And so they saw that as where heaven and earth met. And then there are places on the earth, obviously, like in the desert, when you have an oasis. That would be a sign of life where God must have touched down at that place. And so you'll see Abraham is always uh, meeting God in these locations and returning to them. And that's where there's some kind of a tree. Of course, he's got to be there because he needs water and food for him and his family, his people and his animals. And so even the animals are going to gather at these places because there's water there. And because there's water there, that must mean that God chose to provide life there. So it becomes a sacred space whereby we understand 
that life is coming out of that oasis in the midst of this desert, that is a spot where God has been in the past and quite possibly would return and we could turn to him. And obviously you can't live in the desert without digging your wells, you know, so you need to live there anyway because you've got to have water. So we talked about sacred spaces in the Bible. We talked about the tabernacle and it's paralleled with the tent of meeting. We talked about Solomon's temple and I think you enjoyed those uh, uh, pictures I showed you of the temples. We talked about the second temple that is being remodeled by Herod and he made it much bigger. I showed you much bigger than Solomon's temple. And this is the project that's going on in the time of Jesus. Even in the time of Paul, they're still remodeling it. And they don't finish it until the early 60s. In the mid-60s, the Romans come and shove them out of Jerusalem. And they have to go hide at a place called Masada. And we're going to discuss a little bit of that today. More sacred spaces then would be shrines and other temples. Obviously, uh, the other people would worship their gods at their temples. And even the Israelites would go on these high places, these mountains, uh, they would. Uh, so we've been talking about our body, the one's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But these high places, the Israelites would go up into the high places because they got closer to God by going up to the mountain. And I've been, uh, by virtue of my travels as a missionary, been in the Himalayan mountains, and you have all the same idea that, you know, whereby I was at a, in the northern uh, parts of India, in the mountains, I was there, and you saw this big old statue up on the mountain, because that's where the gods are, they're up there, and so people would make that climb all the way up to that humongous statue, it was huge, and so people would make the journey up there, and people could see that statue, and it was like the god was looking down all over the land. And so people in the ancient world saw that. And people in the Bible, you'll find the word high places. They'll go to those high places and they'll worship. They may even try attempt to worship Yahweh, but not in what we would consider an orthodox manner. But a lot of times they're worshiping Yahweh and a different version of Yahweh, a watered-down version of Yahweh, and they add some other gods in there and it becomes problematic. The most famous of these is Solomon, believe it or not. The man who builds the first temple, which David wanted to do but could not do, that man ends up, because he's a business guy, he's very successful. He's one of the wealthiest. He is the wealthiest. He's the wealthiest in the Bible. And he's doing business transactions. And when you do business transactions, what do you do? You marry that person and they come into the family. Think of, you know, the mafia. <laughs> Think of the family. You know, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. You join the family. So then Solomon would marry these foreign wives when he made these business transactions with these foreign kings and these foreign wives would worship their foreign gods. And Solomon was noted, sadly, to be in the Bible. There was a conference I missed it because I hadn't gone to over that part of the world. Uh, but just before I went to that part of the world, there was a conference over there 
where they were trying to tackle issues, they would have a conference and they would try to hammer these issues out. And if I'm not mistaken, what I understood is these people had gathered together for an entire week. And one of the main topics at this conference was, was Solomon saved because he worshiped at the high places. He worshiped other gods. He was caught up in idolatry. You know, it's one thing for David, which, you know, that's pretty bad what David did. Adultery and murder. But he never worshipped another god. And David had multiple wives. But Solomon actually committed idolatry, the worship of other gods in high places, and that's dangerous. And so the New Testament doesn't really give us this picture of Solomon as this great guy to model. Matter of fact, it says the lilies of the field are more beautiful than Solomon's best robes. His best... So... I don't know, you know, people debate that, whether he is, you know, you're going to understand with Solomon what his in-game situation with Yahweh is. But they, they didn't come out necessarily with an answer. But for a group of Christians who are amid idols and temples everywhere like Paul was, and they have, again, over 330 million gods, you know, that's a, a debatable question. Because they've got people that want to add Jesus to that 330 million. And what I've been trying to teach you is there are other gods, but then Yahweh is supreme way above those. Just like we are all humans and we are a temple of the Holy Ghost. None of us are Jesus. Jesus is way beyond what we are as a human. Therefore, think of it that way. As much as you are human and Jesus is human, but he's so much more. Well, there are other spiritual beings. There are other gods, but Yahweh is so much more than them. Way beyond being the most high. So that's what you need to understand. And we have additional, again, sacred spaces, the mountains and the gardens, because the gardens, oases, that's where life comes from. And life comes from God. And so wherever you find vegetation, that means water is there and that means animals are going to be there and that means you can be there because you can also partake. So trees, all the time, Abraham, it talks about he's at this oak, he's at that tree. There, there's something about trees because there's life and there's water. And wherever life exudes, it's showing that life is coming from the dead. Even in the midst of the wilderness, there is life. This ties to kings, kings who have palaces and gardens. So if you follow the sacred space, David wants to build a temple. David brings, we discussed this, David brings the ark into Jerusalem. And he wants to build the temple. Why? Because he's built his palace. And he says, why should God's ark be in a tent when I have this palace? Back when they built that, Moses, they you know, were wandering around nomads. They were moving from place to place and everybody had a tent. But why am I living in a better place than God is? So David wanted to build, but David had a palace. But kings would also have gardens. Why? Because kings were representing God's rule, heavenly rule on the earth. Therefore, if wherever there is 
God, there's life, there should be a garden. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where God is trying to set humanity up as a king in a sense, but God is the main king. And humanity is like a vassal king, an underling. Again, there's only one king of all kings, and then there's the kings. <laughs> there's the capital K king, and there's the smaller K kings underneath the capital K king. So, you have this idea of the king is obviously going to have a garden. And so anytime you see ancient depictions of ancient stories in Hollywood, on TV or whatever, you're going to see they can walk out of the palace and they got all these gardens about. All this, you see these castles, these big mansions, they got all these beautiful, luxurious land around it with all these guards and everything. It's supposed to represent to the ancient mind that the king was God's man and his rule represents God's flow from heaven through this man to provide for the nation. Right now it's kind of difficult. Our nation is trying to decide how this works in 21st century because we have two opposing, which we it's no longer two. We have so many opposing ideas on how to run a nation and how the government is to provide for people. Before we had the situation with American government, the church built all the hospitals. The church established all the schools. The church was the source. When people had problems, they went to the church. Now they're going to the government. They don't need the church. So it's, it's, it's quite difficult. But we're trying to do something that the Bible never did. We're trying to separate the separation of church and state. And the Bible never did that. In the ancient world, they were church and state was combined because the king was representing God's rule upon the earth. Anyway, so I showed you some of the projects and we're talking about David had his palace. David wanted to build God a temple. David has a garden attached to it because any temple should have life flowing out of it, a garden. Any one that represents God should have always have an abundant source of food to take you back to Eden, the original garden. The original garden. So David had his. Well, if David's got a palace, did you know Herod had his? The Herodium. Built by Herod the Great around 24 BC and was destroyed by the Romans in AD 71. This is where the Jews go hide. When the Romans come in the mid-60s, they leave the temple and they go here. The current summit is about 2,487 uh, feet above sea level, the tallest peak in the Judean desert. He chose the tallest place. So from anywhere, miles around, people look toward that. It's a palace fortress that rose another 98 feet. So he built this back then, before Jesus, 24 B.C., built this 98 feet with an outer diameter of 207 feet, outfitted with a Roman-style bathhouse, theater, living quarters and more. Entire complex is approximately 328 feet above the surrounding countryside. So this is what we have. Good morning. We, we're glad to see you. It's, Thank you. Sunday school starts at 9.30, but don't worry. At 9.30? Yeah, Sunday okay. school starts, and okay. that's fine. 
Yeah. So no worries, because not everybody made it to this service today anyway. So you're fine. You're fine. Just letting you know. We start the Sunday school, and then we start the service at 1030. The main service. So here's another place that Herod had. Herod had a penchant for building and apparently impossible place. So this is, this is what I'm talking about. This is Masada. This is where they go. I'm sorry. This is not the rodeo. This is where they go. In Masada, he built his northern palace on the extremely narrow northern spur of the mountain. And then, so I showed you that. Now here in Caesarea, he built a palace out of the sea. So that was Masada. Yes, that's what I had my notes right. This is another place he built. So Herod is building this huge project. Now remember... There is something about the Herod family. I don't know what it is, but they have done some really wonderful political shenanigans and paid the Romans very famously with their, their skills. They're highly skilled. The Herod family are highly skilled politicians. And they did some vast favors somehow being this little bitty Judah, this Palestine, this little bit. But the Herod family somehow was masterstrokes at politics. And did the Romans, uh, Caesars down through the ages, some quite you know, remarkable things. So they managed to build that fortress at Masada, build this on the sea. This is at Caesarea. This is where Paul was going to go when Paul is judged. Paul goes here and is named after Caesar. So obviously, hey, Caesar, I want to build something and honor you and name it after you. Can you send me the money? <laughs> of course. And aside from little Caesars, <laughs> this is probably most people know of Caesar, the name Caesar from Paul's accounts of being tried and kept here at Caesarea. You know, he built this palace on the sea, swimming pool, carved out of the rock and surrounded by pillars and rooms. After Herod's death, Caesarea became the seat of the Roman government. So after Herod is gone, then the Roman government takes it over. The government resided in this palace and it's thought that Paul was kept in prison here, according to Acts 25.4. We think this is where Paul's at. So he had all these massive building projects. At the same time, he's building the temple. Now we have several Herods, so this is passed on from father to son to grandson. So we have a number of Herods involved in this. It's a whole family thing. Okay. So they had massive building things because that's what kings do. They build. They're building their kingdom. So he's got Masada and he's got this place out of the sea. So he's got both of those. Now, Moses is told in Exodus 25, 8, we've, we've gone to this verse several times. When he's on the Mount Sinai, remember in Exodus 19, the people come to Sinai. Remember in Exodus 20, you get the Ten Commandments. Remember I taught you in Exodus 20, the people say, Moses, this is too intense for us. This is way too intense for us. You go talk to God. Moses goes up to the mountain and talks to God. And while he's doing all that, the Bible then gives a bunch of laws that the people practiced back then to give an example of how life was to happen when they get into the land. And among them is he's given instructions, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So 
Moses is pressing God saying, you've got to go with us. And God's saying, okay, then I want you to build this. And I told you, there's chapter after chapter after chapter. And as God leads, I'd love to go through all that stuff for you. I showed you some of the pictures. But there's chapters. And then it gets the golden calf that interrupts everything because they're getting ready to build all this stuff. And instead, they build the cow. And Moses is on the mountain. They build the cow. But what we are hearing in all these chapters is what God is telling Moses. He comes down to tell them, this is what we're going to build. And instead, they've already built the golden calf. Then we have to go through the process of repentance. And then Moses spends all these chapters after the golden calf to say, hey, God told me to build this. And they build it. And you, again, he repeats it. So it's very important to God that we know these things. But most people skip them. Because he's put it twice for us. But I want you to see this idea now. If you look at the very center of this arc diagram, you have the most holy place inside that sanctuary, whether it be the tabernacle or whether it be the temple. The most holy place I showed you before is the center. Outside of that, you have an antechamber. Outside of that is a courtyard. And outside of that is the camp of Israel. So, the tabernacle, that tent, and in the center of that tent, in a sense, I mean, it's not exactly center, it's all the way, the, the furthest you can go inside the tent. The furthest you can travel inside the building. Okay, so it's the center in that sense. And they believe this to be the center of the cosmos, the universe, because God was there. His feet were in, you know, he's in heaven, and his feet come down to earth and touch, and it can't touch the earth because you your feet shouldn't touch dirt if you're so holy. So therefore, they put the ark there and God can put his feet on it to rest his feet. Incidentally, the word of God is inside the ark. So God is his feet on the word. Incidentally, because the Ten Commandments are inside there. And then you have outside the camp. So when people are told to go outside the camp, it's the farthest away from God's presence or holiness. And foreign countries are outside the camp but this is the idea so you have this spectrum that i'm trying to show you okay where in the center is god's most holy presence on the earth and it's it just kind of ripples outward and then when you get outside the camp that's where it's no longer so sacred so the the closer you get to the center the more holy you are because the closer you are to god's presence and it's at that central location that God's presence is the thickest or the most intense, however you want to view that. So the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. Then you have the holy place the Bible talks about. You have the entire sanctuary compound that I showed you the picture of. So that when you come into this compound, okay, now... For the tabernacle, then you'd have the 12 tribes around that. But for the temple, it's, it's Mount Zion itself. And I showed, you, I showed you a picture of Jerusalem, and I showed you the temple complex. And then you have Jerusalem itself, the holy city. You have the nearby region. As we were making those ascents, I was talking about you're coming closer and closer to Jerusalem. They would consider that holy. You have the entire nation of Israel, which would be God's nation, so that's holy. You have God's people, wherever they go, they may go outside the nation. They still are holy in some sense. 
compared to others who don't worship God, Yahweh, until the whole earth is supposed to be filled eventually with God's glory. This is these spheres of sacredness with, again, the very center being the Holy of Holies. Okay? So holy places, Eden, described both as a garden and a mountain. And I I hope you can understand why the garden and why the mountain, because both of them illustrate two different ideas. That's why I have two different creation accounts. You have a creation account in Genesis 1 of a world of water, and you have a creation account in Genesis 2, a desert. Because it's trying to describe things from extremes. So a garden and a mountain, how can they work together? Well, we know if you get on top of Mount Everest, you're not going to be... My wife can't go up there and get some tomatoes. <laughs> you got to have an oxygen mask. Because only gods can live up there. Okay? But for the people, they understood that life came because that mountain is where the water begins to flow down to then be able to have a garden. So it's where the highest peak where you touch God, touch the skies, you reach the heavens. The patriarchs built altars and dwelt near trees. Since example is Bethel, 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 Bethel. Bethel is where Jacob saw that ladder that climbed between, that, that ascended, descended, the angels descended and ascended to heaven. Okay, and they, he'll return there. Okay, so Bethel, that's a place where God was at. And because God was there, there's obviously, but that's where you're going to sleep. You know, that's where you're going to, if you're traveling as a patriarch like Jacob was, leaving Esau so Esau would not murder him for what he did to steal from Esau, you're going to stop at the night at a place where you're going to have water so you can refresh yourself and find some vegetation to eat something. So you're going to stop at that kind of a place. People worshiped on mountains. Again, Abraham and Moriah, that's where he sacrifices Isaac. And some people associate that with Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, Moses on Mount Sinai in the mountain range Horb. Okay. So that's associated with the holiness of God. The tabernacle later resides at Shiloh. So that becomes a, a sacred space. We talked about that when we... We talked about Genesis 49 at Christmas time, Shiloh. And then the temple at Jerusalem, Zion itself. Okay, so we need to understand though, David couldn't build the temple. Why? Because a temple was never to be made, quote unquote, by human hands. In other words, David can't say, I'm going to build this. Because unless David building it, it has to be no God wants it built. And God is the one who orders it to be built. And God has to ask for it because it's God doing it. It can never, ever be that a human does it. Even they, when they made their idols, they didn't think that they were doing it. The ancient people that made their idols said, we're not using it with our hands. They would imagine themselves using, almost like trees and Jubilee, <laughs> imagine themselves doing what their mother does in the kitchen. Last night, Jubilee was making me pizza. She was making me burgers. She can't wait to try my mom's homemade ice cream, so she made homemade ice cream for me. You know, she's 
doing all these things, modeling. Well, they would, in a sense, do that. They would, they would model that in the sense that they would say, we're not making this idol. We're using spiritual or heavenly divine tools, and, and those things are making the idol because human hands can never make an idol. So you're forbidden to build them unless, unless God says, I want this built. And then you're supposed to build. The king is supposed to either build the temple, remodel the temple, which is Solomon built it, Herod remodeled it. Or the king is supposed to then see to it, maintain it. Josiah maintained. The temple had gotten down and Josiah had Elevate it back up to the way it's supposed to be. But the king, as God's man, is in charge of God's house, along with the priest. He is to see that it's safe. So, hence, now that you understand this, that only the God could say, I want a temple and I want it built here, then the king is acting on the fact that God said this needs to be done, and then he's acting on God's instruction to do it. Therefore, David was not allowed to, to build it. Although it was a good thing, but it was not what God had not initiated it. So Solomon builds it. What do we have then when we turn to Genesis chapter 11? The Tower of Babel. They're trying to build their own mountain. And as I've been trying to describe it to you, they want to build a stairway to heaven themselves. What Jacob saw... In Genesis 28, at Bethel, which is the translation of Bethel is simply house of God. They wanted to build this, not to house God. This is not the house of God. This is just a, an escalator. They're building an escalator. They need stairs to go up to heaven so that the idea is they don't even want to make the climb up this thing. And there's nothing inside this thing. They're building a man-made mountain. I told you earlier that the boys didn't get to go. The plans changed, but they wanted to go to Cokie Mountains because I really want to figure that out because this fits really well with, with this because they would build something because they're trying to build sacred space, holy ground. These people build this in Genesis 11 trying to make a staircase, not for them to go up, but they want God to come down and they're going to build a temple attached to it and they want the God to come down from heaven all the way down and get in their temple. And they are controlling it. And you're forbidden to do that. They're building it with human hands. You're forbidden to do that. Because then it's man doing it. It's humankind doing it. It's not God. And God's like, oh my goodness. They think they're going to build this to go all the way up to heaven. And I'm supposed to come down. Well, I'm going to come down, all right. <laughs> I'm going to come down, but it's not going to be quite what they expect. I'm not coming down in the manner that they can. It's amazing. They would even put a statue up there of a, of a, of a, of a guy with a sword, raised sword. It's like the guardian. Because we're talking about this is now a... Uh, place that's connecting heaven and earth it's a portal for the god to come down i'm talking about they i'm not just talking about genesis 11 we have these built by other ancient people 
attempting the same thing as a stairway for the God to come down. And again, the pyramids, don't confuse with the pyramid. The pyramid has stuff inside. There's nothing inside here. That's not the point. There is nothing inside here. All they want is for God to come down from heaven and come into their temple. And if, if God is here, that means we get the goods from God. Right? We control God. Okay? You know, that's what it's all about. Okay? So the Tower of Babel. So here it is. And it's made out, amazingly out of brick. Out of brick. Now you can see the Tower of Babel at the bottom of your screen on the left compared to the Egyptian pyramids. Okay, and you can see in relationship to a size of an animal or a human being how big this thing was. Okay, they're building this. This is a huge building project in the ancient world. All by brick. All because they want God to come down. They're trying to, but you're forbidden to do that. Because only God can say, I want to come down and I want to come down at this place and I want to choose then for people to gather here and worship me and I'm the God. But they're deciding that they're going to control things. And I described it to you as a rebellion from Middle Earth trying to breach. Remember, we have the rainbow. It's supposed to be a protector a shield that nothing from heaven or God himself is not going to come down in wrath with water and flood the earth again. You're not going to have this from above business. And we don't have any rebellions from above happening in the Bible after Genesis 6. Nothing is coming down bad after Genesis 6 because we have the rainbow. So they're going to build their own thing to breach the rainbow, to break through so that the God will come down under their control. They even described it as the windows of heaven would open and blessing would come down when the windows of heaven... Well, who opens the windows of heaven? Well, God does, or his angels at least do. So they're going to breach it with this stairway that's going to reach like a mountain up to the clouds and going to bring it down. That's the idea here. That's what they want. They want to be able to control God and his blessings coming down and they're trying to throw open the windows of heaven. It's an act of rebellion to which they're judged. So here we go. I don't know if anybody's familiar. I, I'm not very familiar with Chicago. Maybe some of you are. Do we have anybody in the church that's very familiar with Chicago? I don't know. I'm not very familiar with Chicago. I didn't even know this building existed, but... Here we go. You've got the Tower of Babel there. Again, on the bottom left of your screen, you've got the Great Pyramid of Giza to give you an idea of the size factor. You've got the Monad, Monad Nock building in Chicago. The reason why it's here is it's the only building made out of bricks that's this tall. So we're talking about bricks and bricks here. You have, again, a top view. If you were to fly over in a helicopter, you can see what the Tower of Babel would look like. It's a square, and you have an American football field. My dad played football. He knows all about that, so he's had to run up and down those things, so he knows how far that is, 100-yard dash. So you can see the comparison to the size of this thing. Here's, here's the monad Knock building in Chicago, Illinois, and it was constructed in 1891. It's the tallest load-bearing brick building ever constructed that we know of outside 
of the Tower of Babel and these ancient structures. But today, it's standing. That's, that's it. Now, you know, today it's not very big. We have the Empire State Building. But this is out of brick. <laughs> that's, the, that's the point. This is a brick building. I grew up, we used to live in a brick house. I don't know, does anybody live in a brick house? Yeah. You live in a brick house? Oh, you came just the right time. Brick. So there you go. We're talking about brick here. So that's why they're comparison this. And I don't even know where this, I probably go right by this building, not even appreciate it. Not even realize that this is a monument built in 1891 of human technology of us doing something with brick. But here's, here's to give you a picture. These, we got pictures of these things. They're out there. We got pictures of these things. Now, exactly where Babel is, but this is a picture. Again, there's no, this is not like the pyramid. There's nothing inside. This is not a tomb to Pharaoh. Or, this is not, it's, you know, but it is a gateway to heaven. But it's, God established the mountains. God makes mountains, <laughs> right? But they are making their own mountains. See how it's a rebellion? Okay, so again, this is all background for what we're going to do tonight. And they're known as ziggurats. And this is one of my favorite pictures of them. And again, it's kind of faded out, but you can kind of see the people down there on the bottom left. You can see people standing to give you an idea. Of, so this is a modern day, it's a called, they call them ziggurats. This is a, a recent photo of what they looked like. So we are going to deal with the Tower of Babel tonight. Because again, today is Memorial Day. So we're going to have a Memorial Day message for Sunday morning. But to, and that's actually Memorial Day is tomorrow. But today on the church calendar is Pentecost Sunday. And therefore, we're going to deal with Pentecost using Babel tonight. So be sure and come tonight for Pentecost. All right. I hope you enjoyed these slides. <laughs> okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we have going uh, for us to understand that you want to be with us just as much as Jesus came up aside that boat and proclaimed who he is. But there are times when we try to demand what we want. There are times you invite us and you uh, let Peter out on the water with you and he didn't last long because he failed in understanding what you were trying to teach him at that moment. But it is a lesson for us that we can participate in you, but it has to be at your invitation, not our decrees. We pray not our will be done and that you do what we want. We pray to find out what your will is so that we can do things. Let us not be rebellious like those in Genesis 11 trying to do something we should not. And help us not to seek the high places for our own good, but to seek your will for the good of all, which includes us and our own. Because you love us more than we love ourselves and you want the greatest things for us. And we spoil those things with our childish understandings. Help us to see what you want for us. In Jesus' my name we pray. Hallelujah. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this broadcast. You can find out more about us at dken.cc. That's D-K-E-N dot C-C. We look forward to seeing you next time. God bless you.